Before we jump into this episode, we'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which we share this conversation. We pay our respects to the elders, past and present. This always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Hello and welcome back to the Stuck In Between podcast. My name is Romy. And I'm Sandan. Thanks for joining us. In this episode, we're honoured to be joined by Dalit rights activist Dainmoli Saundararajan to learn more about the issue of caste oppression. The caste system is a hierarchical structure that has grouped and divided people for centuries, thriving as a tool for exclusion and oppression. It's entrenched in so many aspects of South Asian life, from religion to arts to workforces and relationships, just to name a few. And it often manifests in ways that we don't always realise. That's why conversations like the one we share with Dane Molly to learn more about the experiences of marginalised people and the advocacy work to promote equality are so important. To open our eyes, to confront our blind spots and understand what we can all do to help change the narrative. As such, this podcast won't be the last time we explore the topic of caste, as we'll revisit it in future episodes to unpack things like caste privilege, how it's tied in with arts and cultural practices, hate crimes, and through a bunch of other lens to explore the subject in all its complexities. This is such a big issue to be tackling, and we felt that for any attempt for us to unpack it, it has to start by learning from the voices most impacted. But for now, let's get into the episode. Then, Molly, it's so great to connect with you today. For our listeners who might not be familiar with your work, Then Molly is, of many things, an incredible activist, educator, writer, filmmaker, and artist who does really important work campaigning for the rights of caste-oppressed and marginalised people. We're so thankful for your time today to get to chat to you about an issue which... Because of Romy and my privileges, we're very fortunate in that it's not something that we're consciously confronted by on a daily basis. And I know even the fact that it is a topic that we don't always think about is a sign of our privilege and some of the blind spots that we might have personally. So we're really keen to learn more from you. Oh, I'm so happy to be here. And I think conversations like these are how we heal from caste. So really looking forward to getting into it and into my book, The Trauma of Caste with you all. We'll dive into what caste is and how caste structures work and how it manifests as a form of discrimination in a little bit. But I'd love to start by asking, as much as you're comfortable sharing, when did you first become aware of the concept of caste? So I think that for me, caste was always there um, in my family's life. You know, we had fled India to escape caste apartheid. And as a child, I was really keenly aware of how traumatized my parents were from all that they had left behind. And this is something I'm sure, you know, especially Tamils who have left genocide and other mass atrocity from Sri Lanka can really empathize with, is that just because your parents don't talk about it doesn't mean that you don't see it all over their hearts and their bodies and minds. And especially South Asians in general, we just have learned really ineffectively how to shove our trauma down Mm. and then try to just stay focused on, you know, our pursuit of being model minorities or as settler colonials, but that pain doesn't go away. And as a child, I didn't have words for it, but I saw my parents stealing those moments where they would cry about things that they had remembered or Mm. the panic attacks or the insomnia and the fear because they were also closeted. So not wanting to share their caste background with their peers and all the things that they used to do to hide their identity. And as a child, you don't need words to know that something is wrong. And Mm. so I really feel like a big part of my journey around caste was trying to understand and give empathy for my parents and also what could make the people that you think are the strongest people in the world so shook. Mm, right. Absolutely. I'm so sorry that your family had to go through that. That sounds horrible. When did you connect the dots between this is why my parents have actually been going through all of this and this is why I witnessed what I did when I was a kid? 
I think for me, everything kind of opened up when I did a report about the Bhopal industrial disaster. I know it's like in fifth grade. In and, fifth grade. Um, wow. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> you know, I was so earnest. And when I read about this disaster, and it was the first time on like American news outlets, you saw so many brown people and so many brown bodies in distress mm. like that. So I think that's why it really like hit me. And then when I read about it, they used this word untouchable. And I was shocked. Like it kind of like hit my mind like a thunderbolt. I was like, mm. why would someone be untouchable? This is so terrifying. So then I started this whole journey where I like looked up the encyclopedia, what untouchability was, which brought me to cast and how it's this hierarchical system and it's defined by birth and there's people at the top and the bottom and, you know, the whole shebang, right? Mm -hmm. And as soon as I read about it, I sat there and I was like, what is our cast? So mm -hmm. I immediately pulled my mom aside. I was like, what cast are we? And, you know, for South Asians, like this is our version of the talk, you know, mm -hmm. our parents right. don't want to talk about this because it's talking about dehumanization mm -hmm. and intergenerational trauma and violence. Mm -hmm. So I just always remember the way she looked and, you know, she's trying to solidify this very complicated system that could hurt her daughter. And she was trying to say the things that could maybe help her feel better about it. And she was like, cast is a lie that the wicked tell to be able to take from the good. And mm -hmm. she's like, don't even think about it. And I was like, but mom, what are we? And mm. she's like, well, we're one of these untouchable casts. We're butting in. And it was kind of like a thousand bricks, like just fell on me. <laughs> and then mm. I had so many questions, like, well, what was your experience? What was daddy's experience? Like what yeah. happened? And then yeah. it was from there that I just started asking. And then at night, that's when I would really let my mind wander about it because I was like, wow, what did I do? You know, what could have made me a spiritual criminal like this? Right. And right. that whole load that comes with knowing that you're seen as spiritually impure mm. because you did something in another life. That's such a hard thing to grapple with as a child yeah, and in sure. anyone's kind of journey, you know, mm. around spirituality. And so it's almost like nothing could really satisfy my desire around knowledge about it. And it was weird to me that nobody talked about it. And yeah. I always remember when I, you know, as soon as I found out I was Dalit, I wanted to tell everybody so that they knew. Mm. And then I made some mistakes around it. Like I told a friend of mine about it and her mom overheard us. And then that's when she practiced untouchability on me and made a wow. switch plates because she didn't want me to touch her food you know and mm. stuff like that like you just remember you know it's hard to forget and it's been a long journey to kind of go from those initial days of denial and the tabooness of caste to where we are now where we are in a moment of global civil rights where we're seeing the global caste equity movement demand recognition for caste oppression that we're seeing all around the world but also to look for remedies and reconciliation. Because once you change the policies, we can actually have an honest conversation about what it takes to heal from caste. And that, that was a big part of why I wrote this book is that I think we're just tired of the violence and the polarization and the bigotry. And, you know, I think if we can bring some sunshine to this problem, we can really transform it, you know? Mm, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Like you said, it's such a, huge thing for anyone to grapple with let alone a child at such a formative stage in your life I can't imagine what it would have been like for you obviously you had some seeds planted when you had that discovery about your family and your history and who you are did that spark your desire to be an advocate and explore this path and be a voice for change back then as a child? Or is that something that grew more towards your later years? I think that from, you know, when I was a child to when I got to school, I think I was just hungry to know who I was, hungry to mm. understand the pain. And I didn't know that change was possible yet. You know, I just knew it was like that thing where you just, you know how like when you grow up a brown person in a white culture, when you don't see yourself around you, you actually wonder like, where's my place in the world? So right. I think there's just that drive about what does this mean to me as someone who's South Asian American? And I think it was when I got to college, when I had like more women of color around me, and I could also be part of 
movements, I could see that you can turn pain into power. Mm. You can really work with other people that understand your issues and build broad coalitions to address grave discrimination like caste and make institutions better. So learning both about my identity and being surrounded by women of color that helped create a platform for my intersectional identity was so transformative. Mm. And then I became an activist through that process. And I spent a long time in that work, just building solidarities with other BIPOC movements all around the United States. And That work was so fundamental because, you know, you don't just get allies to this work just by a call. It really comes from like carrying each other's waters and understanding what are the limitations to the violence that people are facing and being able to see a vision of shared liberation with each other. Mm. And that took a long time to build. But I think those are all of the foundations with which we're building our movements today. Mm. Yeah, that's incredible. I know you mentioned before that, I mean, it's common with South Asian households that a lot of things are not spoken for and trauma is often pushed down. Were your family and your parents happy for you to do all this activism and to air all of this out? Or was their preference for you not to dig up this part of you because they were afraid of where that could land you? I think that they were deeply afraid about the violence Mm. that could occur to me, especially because they had left to leave behind the violence. Mm. So I think it's kind of their worst nightmare. (laughs) (laughs) Their daughter would become an activist around it. But, you know, the thing is, is that I couldn't like in really good faith, just settle and focus on my life and become a doctor or a lawyer or whatever the fancy profession would be. Because in the back of my mind, I would just always see the images of my people that were still enslaved. And, you know, until all of us are free, none of us are free. Mm. And this work around abolishing caste is so multidimensional because we are so forbidden to talk about the experiences we've had from this violence and also um, how we can then integrate reconciliation and healing as we work towards remedying it. And So the sophistication of understanding how deep our wounds go, that really takes a lifetime to build, you know. Mm. Um, But I always remember my parents being so horrified, you know, every time I would go to a protest because they were worried for their lives, they were worried for my life. But the opposite was also true, which is that why they were scared I've never had such a supportive set of parents like mine Mm. in terms of standing by me. So, you know, my parents have been to every protest that I've gone to or held. They've been with me through every campaign when I'm writing or doing op-eds or work related to this. Like they always make sure I have chai or itli and dosa. (laughs) And it's just that they know it's important. And through this process, they've also been able to come out. So it's weird because when you are diminished and your story isn't validated and you're in the closet, being able to have each other's backs as you come out and speak your truth is so tremendous. And everyone's going to have a different way that they support coming out on this issue. For my mom, for example, for her, it was always about cooking for the movement. So she could easily cook up idli dosa Mm. and lamb curry for like 300 people at the drop of a hat. And my dad would just like flank me in terms of being a bodyguard and mobilizing other uncles so that, you know, I would be safe when I would go because there would be people that wanted to do violence towards me. And I've had Mm. thousands of rape and death threats over the course of my work. And they've sat with me, you know, they've sat through it. It's like, it's not just you when you're an activist around these issues, your entire family becomes collateral damage. And so Mm. there's no way I could do this work if they didn't back me the way that they Mm. do. Amazing. And I guess the best work comes from people banding together and, and supporting one another as well. I guess if we take a step back a little bit, we've mentioned the term cast a few times and in all transparency, the knowledge that Sandlin and I have when it comes to the caste system is quite limited. And through this limited knowledge, I think really my understanding of it, it's probably far too simplistic to really capture what it actually means. But my understanding, it's like a social division, right? And a way of categorizing different lineages and families and members of society. And it started off with your occupation, where your family comes from. Is my understanding correct? Like how would you define 
the term caste or the caste system if you strip it back to someone who has no idea about what it is? So caste is a system of hierarchy that has its origin in Hindu scriptures, but is now found across all religion and all countries of origin in South Asia. And its primary logic is that, you know, there are people at the top that kind of establish these scriptures who are Brahmin, and they set up this system of graded impurity where your profession and what caste you're born into determines your spiritual purity and your outcomes in life and your Mm -hmm. proximity to, you know, systemic violence. So in the traditional caste system, as we understand it, you have Brahmins or priests who are at the top. You have the Kshatriyas who are the rulers who are next. And then you have Vaishyas who are the merchants and then Shudras who are the peasants. And then outside of that whole system are those that are seen as spiritually impure because they did crimes in another life and therefore they are untouchable. And to touch them or be in proximity to them is to risk spiritual pollution and they themselves could be beat or worse. And, you know, of course, nobody wants that term as an epithet. So we choose instead to call ourselves Dalit or Cast Depressed. Mm-hmm. You know, we have different names and people basically take those names as part of their self-determination to escape the violence of caste. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then you also have people that are Adivasi or who are tribal. So within these large categories, you have thousands of castes and subcastes. And, you know, it's a defining access of discrimination for 1.9 billion people. And it's gone to everywhere that South Asians go across the world. And we're seeing grave amounts of discrimination in the diaspora. You know, so in the U.S., my organization, Equality Labs, conducted one of the first surveys documenting caste mm-hmm. in the U.S., and we saw that one in four caste-depressed people experience physical and verbal assault, one out of three educational discrimination, and two out of three workplace discrimination. And that's severe and grave discrimination, which is why the movement in the United States and around the diaspora has been, we need to add caste as a protected category, because while we might be, you know, covered under existing protections, our experiences of discrimination are so grave, we need an immediate remedy now. And so that's the heart of this moment. And Australia has been like such an incredible leader around some of this work, because the Australian Human Rights Commission's new report on the racial framework includes caste in a huge section. Mm. And that's like a first for all of the Commonwealth countries. So this is really a movement moment where we're seeing South Asians around the world grapple with the wound of caste and also commit to reconciliation and healing. And that's a profound thing because we've not seen that happen at a global scale before. And it's very exciting to see that work happen. Mm. Yeah, for sure. I saw also recently that Seattle has made some changes to recognize caste-based discrimination in some of its anti-discrimination laws as well. So it's incredible to see the work that people like you do have these really tangible impacts across both Eastern and Western spheres. And I think the reason why there's so much traction with this work is that we're not talking about, you know, hurt feelings, you know, all that's certainly there, you know, what we're talking about is grave and structural discrimination. So we can see cash showing up in terms of the trafficking of domestic labor, you know, domestic Mm. workers who work for dominant caste families. We see it show up as part of coercive control and domestic violence, where you might have intercaste relationships and the dominant caste partner threatens to hurt their family back at home if they don't do the right thing because they have access to dominant caste police and other political figures. We've also seen caste operate in terms of workplace discrimination, where caste oppressed workers are aggressively being outed on their identity or the open usage of caste slurs, or in worst case scenarios, bullying and sexual harassment and even demotion and termination. So it's a really serious set of issues that we're kind of seeing, which is why, you know, we know how to solve for this. You actually have to change the policy 
build caste equity, and then work to celebrate caste arrest contributions in your workplace. So, you know, this is really why this movement has taken off in the way that it has, because it's kind of a no brainer, you know, discrimination is happening, change the policy, and then work to um, build awareness and understanding because those are the platforms for reconciliation and healing. But of course, there are the bigoted who are facing deep discomfort of the idea that they might have to sit at the table in equity with caste oppressed people. And I understand that. And I have empathy for our opponents because discomfort is hard. You know, it upends everything that they're used to doing, which includes being openly bigoted. However, Mm -hmm. I think there are other remedies to deal with that discomfort, like meditation or sitting in healing circles with other dominant caste people who are working to unlearn their caste supremacy, like the workshops that we have in Equality Labs. But I want to make the distinction that dominant caste fragility and discomfort is not the same as grave caste discrimination, which is Mm. what caste oppressed people are enduring and is unlawful, both by human rights standards and by civil rights law. Mm. And so we need to really address it before the conditions get worse. Yeah, absolutely. And speaking of caste oppressed people in particular, I was listening to a podcast recently. It was unrelated to the topic of caste, but it did come up and they were talking about how People fear that even if the shadow of someone who is Dalit casts over you, then you've also been, you know, touched by the, the untouchables. And I was floored knowing that these are the types of thought processes that were going through people's minds, particularly in South Asia. Can you share some insight to what it actually looks like to be caste oppressed in India, for example, and what types of scenarios people are faced with on a day to day basis? Well, I think that what people need to know is that caste is found in all countries of South Asian Mm. origin. And in my book, I have many data points related to violence and discrimination across all of our South Asian countries, which Mm -hmm. include high rates of illiteracy, lack of public health, Mm -hmm. extreme acts of violence, like, you know, every hour, three dollars are murdered, two are raped, and several houses are burnt. It's a significant system that has enacted just terrible consequences for caste oppressed people. And I think that, you know, one of the tragedies of caste is that it's really one of the biggest wastes of human capital. You know, we Mm. at a time when there's so much instability in the region, you know, we really need all hands on deck. And instead, we're basically allowing for hundreds of millions of people to just be obliterated by this vicious system. So it's one of the reasons why I really, you know, feel so strongly about talking about this issue, because caste doesn't just hold caste oppressed people back, it holds all of us back. So Mm -hmm. the more that we can really work to change the system, the more that we can heal ourselves for the better, you know. And again, please do correct me if I'm wrong, but... From my understanding, the purpose the system was designed to serve has been manipulated over time to benefit certain people in society and contain power and wealth. In that sense, if we think about the ways in which it's ingrained in how South Asians engage with one another and the spaces around them, how is caste oppression seen in places of worship or career opportunities or the arts or gender roles sorry i know that's a really big question but something i only learned about recently was about its ties with the birth of Bharatanatyam as an art form and you know we look at Bharatanatyam as this really beautiful and prestigious thing but in reality it does have this really dark history connected with caste oppression that i don't think we acknowledge or think about that enough when we do appreciate Bharatanatyam for what it is. Well, it's very interesting that you share that because I do think that, you know, one of the challenges that we really have to deal with is that the caste soul wound is like one of the defining wounds that shapes everything about South Asian history and all of our lineages and who we are. And one thing I would just maybe adjust slightly from what you said is that the origins of caste were always about exploitation. 
There is mm-hmm. nothing salvageable about what caste has done to our people because from the minute the caste system was established, so was caste slavery. Right. And my people were caste slaves for many centuries. And, you know, when you read some of those original scriptures that defined it, it's just horrific. The kinds of dehumanization and deprivation that was linked to being caste depressed. And I really went through that hard process in writing the book of looking at all the different ways caste is found in, you know, caste is defined in like Hindu scripture, but it's found in now all religious communities of practice. And so just learning to see the ways we've seen that pattern of violence travel, you can see by not talking about it, we've actually just continued it mindlessly over and over and over and over again. Mm. And certainly it plays a role in our cultural movements. That's really the huge problem. And so I think it's like so important for us to really move with care and question everything when it comes to what we think of as our shared legacies in this work, because it is a challenge. (laughs) It's it's a deep challenge Mm. in terms of what we have lost in terms of our connection to each other because of this violence. Yeah, I guess one of the reasons why I asked that question is to acknowledge that because caste oppression isn't something that I think about on a daily basis, in part because of my privilege, I'm interested to understand what I could be doing unknowingly to perpetuate the issue or Mm. the things that I might participate in without having that understanding that, it does have connections with caste oppression or stems from a place of discriminatory thought or action without me recognizing it. Um, So in that sense, what can I do as someone who might be more caste privileged to be more mindful of things like that? Uh, I think that that is really helpful to think through a little bit. And then because in some ways, when you start to look for where you see caste around you, especially, you know, once you've started to kind of like open your heart and mind, you kind of see it everywhere. It's like the matrix. You're like, oh mm-hmm. my gosh. <laughs> you know? So for us, I think it might show up in the way that your parents talk about terms like, oh, that's a good family. Well, if it's a good family, what's a bad family or what makes a bad match? And then you're like, oh, they're not like us. They're like from a different community, you know, and community is sometimes a euphemism for caste, right? Or it might come around religion, which is often linked to caste communities because certain religions like Islam and Christianity and Buddhism are linked more closely with caste oppressed people because they were faiths that people converted in to escape caste. Right. So mm. I think, you know, South Asians are a people that know how to basically they don't say things in a direct way it's all about the context and it's all about the elisions that set up this boundary of caste violence you know but then there are also direct things like i've been around tech professionals who directly say that they believe that dalit people are less intelligent and are there because of government handouts and you know, have used terms like people are thieves or murderers back at home. This is things that other activists have said, or, you know, this one other leader had said that when he was in school, Brahmin students were like, I'm so glad I don't have to be back at home. So I'm not around that low caste scum here in America. At least we can be people of merit, you know? So there's a lot of open bigotry that's happening in some of these spaces And it's never been challenged before. So our movement for caste equity is really forcing people to self-examine, oh my gosh, have I been casually casteist this whole time? Or for people that are part of maintaining bigoted networks of power, they're really being put on blast because they're like, oh, I can't do that anymore. I can't say that because I'm a Brahmin, I'm better at math or I should be in tech because we have centuries of mathematical training that other castes don't have because we're just naturally brilliant at it. You know, these kinds of things that, you know, are really normalized in some of these places that's becoming more and more a place where we can build more understanding so that, no, let's not talk about things through these lines of solidified structural assumptions based on caste. Let's try to find more flexibility, more nuance, and find openings for healing because we're able to really talk about what is the violence behind these words or these implicit and explicit biases. Mm. Right. I hear you. 
with all the topics that we cover on our podcast, Romy and I do our best to reflect on how these issues prevail in the world around us. And they become really good opportunities for us to not only look at these topics academically, but also have conversations with our family and our loved ones about their experiences too that we might not normally have, right? So mm. I'm curious to ask you about this, Rami, because we actually haven't spoken about it before. What are your and the people around you's experiences when it comes to casteism? Yeah, so interesting. I never have until we were doing research for this podcast. I know then, Molly, when you first spoke with Sandon on the phone, you asked him the question. And when he told me about that, I was like, I actually have no idea about my own scenario. So I did ask my parents. And the thing that they mentioned was that a lot of the time where they've seen it manifest in Sri Lanka was when it came to marriages. So my mum didn't know what her caste was until her older sister was getting married. My mum was in her late 20s or something. And because it was an arranged marriage, they were looking for grooms. They asked for her caste. And they said that that was really where they saw it very prevalent when it came to people dating, even love marriages, they get to a point where then they ask about one another's castes as well. So I personally haven't experienced it in a huge way in my life. And I guess that speaks to my privilege as well. But this was a really interesting conversation that did come up with my family. And it seems to be sort of in the context of weddings and marriages that it does come up a lot more. But they did mention that there are some parts of Sri Lanka where people won't let people of certain caste into their homes and so on as well. So there's definitely like a deeper rooted issue there, but potentially because of all the other issues going on in Sri Lanka, it may not have been front of mind when it came to like a societal issue. And it's so interesting because I think the other piece that I just want to also pick up on was this stuff around relationships because you know Mm. in the survey that we did there was a really interesting data point around romantic partnerships which was Mm -hmm. that 40% of Dalits reported being rejected in a romantic partnership on the basis of caste so you know I was just talking to Mira Estrada who is a Dalit Hindu who grew up in Canada and she's Gujarati and was totally part of the Hindu temple growing up and you know, for the most part, their family was in the closet, but they did all the things, you know, and they were part of all the groups. And there was a shadow similar in my family about something's wrong. We can't talk about certain things. But where it really became explicit for her was around marriage, just like how you were talking about with your mom, mm. because then it was all of a sudden people that she'd grown up with, people that thought that they would be good matches. As soon as they found out her community's background, she was, you know, not desirable anymore. Yeah. And a lot of women talk about this where it's mm-hmm. like they were a good match up until that point. You know, and there's this really beautiful op-ed that came out about this young Dalit girl in Toronto. She was saying how she was in college and her friend said, I can't bring you home because my parents don't support intercaste relationships and you'd be unworthy to meet my parents. And she was like really mad when she heard that. She's like, what is she talking about? But then her friend said, you know, my sister brought someone who was from another caste and another religious background and my parents beat her and she's not allowed to to see anybody anymore. And, you know, just think about the fact that you have dominant caste parents that are enforcing these caste and religious ideas by Mm, domestic violence. And and it's normalized. Like the crazy thing about that op-ed where she was like, And then I realized that all of my friends talk about how their families beat their children if they cross these caste and religious lines. And, you know, this is her experience. So I don't want to make generalizations about our community. But when she told me this story, something in me just like fell away in my body, you know, Mm. because we actually have seen our parents be terrified if we're no longer being a good family, being a bad family. And I think we have to always ask, what is our family considering bad? Because those are the lines that they've been trained around purity and pollution and who they segregate from and where the lines of bigotry exist in our community. And when we slow down enough to start to think and ask those questions, it's like earth shattering. Yeah. Yeah, And I know that what you're talking about, it's so prevalent in today's society as well. Like my dad has friends in Sri Lanka who definitely still look at caste marriages and it's not even there. I've heard people even in Australia 
which, you know, again, shows my privilege because I was so surprised that in a country like here, they're still looking amongst caste as well. So it's like so many layers to who you are and your identity that you're getting marked upon, but it's nothing. It was just what you were born into, right? And I know people dating here who their parents weren't super comfortable with because they were from two separate castes, which is just insane that it's just continuing to get carried into this society and over generations also. I know it'll take time to stop, but it really is just this toxic cycle of it. So, and then how about your experience? Yeah, so my family are Shudras, which are kind of the fourth level of mm-hmm. the system. So speaking to my family's experiences, the story that's probably most notable with my grandma is that when she fled to India to escape the war in Sri Lanka, my grandparents struggled to get a place to stay in part because of their caste. Mm. And then with my parents, when they were getting married, I know they wanted certain people to play roles within the wedding ceremony, but people around them had issues with that because of those people's castes. And in my head, I'm like, okay, you know, these stories happened years ago in a different country. I didn't expect that many people around me, kind of in my age group, would have experiences themselves in Australia today. Mm. But a friend of mine was saying recently that he had to break up with his girlfriend because her parents didn't like the fact that she was dating someone who was of a lower caste. And a cousin of mine was saying a few years ago, actually, that her roommate, when she was in uni, wouldn't share plates and dishes with her. And it wasn't until she figured out why that she herself was surprised that people still have those kind of attitudes Mm. about caste even today in a Western country. Um, And actually another story that came to mind, which I completely forgot about until we started having this conversation is when there's jobs that need to be done around the house that we can't do ourselves rather than calling a tradesman. My parents would always try and give that work to recent refugees to, you know, kind of help them out a little bit. Mm. And I remember in high school, there were some people who came to do some landscaping work and my mom cooked lunch for them, but I noticed that they were eating outside. So I asked her, you know, like, hey, why are they eating outside? You know, tell them to come inside and eat. And she said, yeah, I know. I've tried asking them a million times, but they won't because there's this thing called caste. And they they said that they don't feel comfortable doing that because they're so ingrained in this understanding that they're lower than someone else. Mm. And that took me back. And I think that was when I first heard the term cast and learnt a little bit about it. And, you know, I actually completely forgot about that story until we started this recording. Mm. And Sandan, can I ask you a question? So first of all, thank you so much for sharing those stories and your own family's experience when you think back to those stories, like where do you feel it in your body? I feel this like frustration in my chest. Mm. I think, yeah. you know, whenever someone is treated like a second class citizen or not treated with respect as an equal, I think that's the sort of feeling I get. Mm. And for me, it shows up as grief also in my chest mm. because, you know, I've heard so many of these stories. So you see the pattern and especially, you know, I was just talking about this with a friend of mine yesterday. She's actually Malayali. And she had a story about how she remembers going to this friend's house and it was a Brahmin house and they had two kitchens, one kitchen for them and another kitchen for other people. (laughs) When she saw that, she was just so grossed out by it. And I had that experience too. I've had Brahmin roommates in the past and they, you know, they wouldn't let me cook on their stuff. I had to have my own cooking stuff. And at the time I just said, well, it's their culture. You know, I don't want to rock the boat and, you know, okay, that's them. And when I told her the story, you know, yesterday, she was like, weren't you mad? I would have been so mad if I were you. And I think it's taken me about 30 to 40 years to be mad about it, to be honest, because at the time it's just presented as this is the cultural norm. 
you know, you're not worthy. It's totally okay for us to segregate. It's totally okay to give you the bad bathrooms and the broken plates Mm. and Mm. the things that are disposable because we don't want you to touch it. But imagine the psychological training that we accept it. You know, and I think that's why sending your story really kind of hit home for me because you see the conditioning we as a cast depressed people also carry. And I think for me, because, you know, we're in intercaste spaces all the time and dominant Mm. caste people and Brahmins in particular, they really reinforce this idea that it is is totally okay to segregate and use different cutlery and plates because it's just who we are and it's what we do. And you're actually like, you know, raining on our parade and our culture if you do that. But guess what? That's what white people did. They segregated (laughs) You know, when you think about the history in Australia and in India, they had segregated neighborhoods. They had segregated places where you could drink water, segregated bathrooms. That was also their way of life. That was also their culture. And guess what? It was fucking disgusting and unlawful. Hmm. But I think when you're one person up against that system, and especially if you're a child or it's taught to you that this is what it means to be South Asian is you accept this. And if you don't, you're like being whitewashed or whatever garbage people are throwing down your throat to like accept this bigoted norm. It's so hard. Mm. And I think that's why it's really tender to me to hear people tell these stories because stories heal us because we are able to really see each other through the violence and through the bigotry And then we can also find opportunities to heal. Like I do, I have friends that are from many different castes and I have, I myself have been vegetarian as well as have friends who are vegetarian. And I think we can find ways to coexist around this, Mm. especially when norms of purity and pollution aren't used to shame caste depressed people. And there is a, a level of social integration and a dismantling of these really terrible processes that I think are so important, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. I mean, at the end of the day, we're all people, right? And it's just heartbreaking whenever we don't treat each other like that. Mm-hmm. Um, another example that came to mind when you were sharing your story about your friend is I know someone who is Brahmin and from time to time he will bring up the fact that he's a Brahmin, but when it's like selectively beneficial for him to do so, but then he'd go out drinking and doing all these things that Brahmins are told not to do. So I guess that's the other level of it, right? Where, you know, people who acknowledge caste are selective about when and where it applies. Mm. Yeah. And that's why I wrote about the caste soul wound in my book, because the way caste works is that when we focus only on the consequences of caste and the people, you know, whose bodies and lives are exploited in order for caste to continue, we actually miss a whole crucial part of the equation, which is the caste privilege. And what are the ways that their inconsistent and complicit behavior often allows for the continuing of caste exploitation and, you know, and that there's actually wounds and pain related to that, because certainly there may be, you know, a small few people who are like the control and the dominators that are driving a lot of these bigoted agendas. But for the most part, a lot of dominant caste people are really vastly underprepared to deal with caste stress and Mm -hmm. have watched and have had their nervous system trained over centuries of domination to be quiet and complicit in the face of violence. And so Mm. people know that things are bad and things are going on, but they don't know how to step out of it because very few people they know have had the courage to break away from that family training, which is so hard in every basic context. Like, you know, we know that from queer folks about what it means to kind of escape or medical hegemony in that context or survivors of gender-based violence. But I think this is why you see that inconsistency where on one hand they're, you know, you see Brahmin castes are told that they're like the superheroes of the South Asian community and they're taught to rule and to dominate, but the restrictions limit and create pathways where they don't get to interact with everyone else because they have to keep themselves apart in very violent ways. And I always remember doing an interview with my friend for my podcast, it was Brahmin. He's like, you know, I spent all this time trying to get the holy thread and, you know, go into the inner sanctum of the temple. 
And, you know, once I was in there, I realized everyone that I loved was on the outside. (laughs) And why did I want to be in here in this heart of privilege? Like when I could actually go be with the rest of the world, Mm. that's the healing that also is required because when people realize they can let go of their privilege, you might lose some small access of power, but you regain your humanity and your kinship with the rest of us, you know? Yeah, for sure. And I think that's why these stories are so important, right? To understand different experiences when it comes to these issues so we can all collectively change the narrative. And, you know, this definitely won't be the last time we cover the topic of caste on a podcast. We can't let you go then, Molly, without giving you a massive congratulations on your recently released book titled The Trauma of Caste, A Dalit Feminist Meditation on Survivorship, Healing and Abolition. Can you tell us a little bit about the journey of writing the book? Because I'm sure the research and conversations and reflections you would have had in preparation for it would have been quite a remarkable journey. Well, thank you so much. That means a lot. You know, it's been so incredible to see the global conversation that has grown from this little humble book. And, you know, for me, I think it was really important, especially as a Tamil of the diaspora and as a Dalit American, to have a book on caste that talked about caste in our context and to also talk about it through the lens of healing. Because I think with all of these intergenerational pains that we have, whether it's that of genocide or caste apartheid, we need more tools in the South Asian community to know how do we address them in a way that's meaningful and also allow us to let the pain go and use the wound like the caste soul wound to find each other and to find healing Mm. and transformation. So there's a lot of lessons in it. I think, you know, if you're a survivor, if you're a South Asian, if you're caste depressed, if you're caste privileged, if you're someone interested in feminist intersectionality Mm. or the way that global transnational movements can find collaboration to each other, I think there are so many audiences for this book. And I wrote it in that way because we are in a time of deep polarization. We're in a time of deep despair. And many people feel like our democracies in South Asia are in crisis because of historical trauma and religious ethno-nationalism. And so it was my hope that in having a really frank but empathy-centered conversation that we might find an opening to heal and that we might find a possibility to think differently about the ways we work towards accountability and reconciliation. Because how often do we talk about reconciliation versus experience reconciliation from historical Mm. violence? And so we need these new tools because we have people in power that want us to just go down the path of mass atrocity again. And that's why I felt really driven to write this book. And it's been incredible the way that people have really met the moment of this book with the response in terms of movements for healing and transformation of their institutions. So I'm extremely proud of what's occurred and so glad that we're here and just encourage everyone to buy the book and and read it in beloved community. This is like a book that really needs to be read with other people so that Mm. you can really push on, you know, the book has covers a lot of history. It covers work about caste in the United States and the diaspora. It covers, you know, some of the religious pieces as well as what is the political moment in terms of genocide mean, but also has worksheets and meditations and a really great glossary. If you're just starting to get familiar with caste, it's a really great foundational step to learn about the caste equity movement and hopefully will help you take your path forward in terms of becoming a caste abolitionist. Incredible. Congratulations again. We definitely do encourage everyone to grab your book and to learn more about this also. What else do you think someone can do to educate themselves on this topic? Even when doing research for this episode, it was quite overwhelming. But do you have any particular resources or any places that people can go? Well, I think one thing is people want to really get involved with the caste equity movement and learn more about caste abolition. Definitely, I recommend picking up this book, but I also recommend that people look up my organization, Equality Labs, online and on our socials. Follow us and join our newsletter because we'll have 
call outs for campaigns that are happening anywhere around the world related to caste equity. I also recommend that people read up and in the back of my book, there's actually a huge bibliography of books to kind of get more connected Mm. with other Dalit authors and caste depressed thinkers. And, you know, it's a huge platform to be able to learn more history and connect to this work. And then on a practical level, one thing I would ask everyone here is that if you're part of an organization or a professional association, consider adding caste as a protected category. Yeah, That's a Mm. huge step in terms of making your institutions more inclusive. When you do make it public and then tag us at Equality Labs because then we can help amplify it because every institution that adds it is a global recognition of caste depressed people and making sure that your workplaces are safe for all people. And then I would also Mm. consider celebrating Dalit History Month and the contributions of caste depressed people from history in whatever context or field that you're in. Dalit History Month has become such an incredible touchstone for people all around the world. And having events that bring awareness to caste depressed people is the other side of preventing violence and discrimination. Because when people know that we're here, when they know that we're a really crucial part of civil rights history, it's a way for us to know that we're all connected and all unified as one family, one people. Mm. And it's incredible. I love that. Well, thank you so much again, Thane Molly, for helping us grasp a better understanding of this issue and opening our eyes in many ways too. Conversations like these are so important and I'm sure that there's many others listening who would have gotten a lot out of this discussion themselves and hopefully recognize how they can be more conscious of this type of oppression and speak up and take action accordingly as well. I know that this is just the start of my journey, learning more about caste-related issues. So I'm really looking forward to getting a copy of your book. And again, thank you so much for all the incredible work that you do and sharing what you have with us today. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much. It's been so insightful. Like I've personally learned so much. So really appreciate it and looking forward to getting my hands on your book as well. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, just really honored to be here and look forward to next time. Thanks so much for listening, everyone. We hope that this episode has taught you something new and has given you something to take away and reflect on to spark more investigation and conversations. Like we mentioned at the start of the episode, we'll definitely be revisiting this topic down the track to continue to explore its complexities. For more info, be sure to check out Dan Molly's organisation, Equality Labs, and the powerful work that they do, as well as her book, details of which are in the show notes. There's so much important work being done in this space, there's no shortage of resources to learn from. Definitely. Until then, we'll catch you next time. Bye.